Hey everyone, I hope you had a safe and happy new year, and thanks for sticking with us through the hiatus. If you stay after the credits, you'll get to hear a promo for Diary of a Mothman, a new show created by a friend of the show, Ashley Craft. At this point in the history of the Kingmaker Diamond, it's now necessary to go back one final time to April of 1911 and answer a question that is likely on many of your minds. What became of Ariadne and Leonid Culver? When we last saw them, Ariadne had been sliced down the middle by a piece of sheet metal. Leonid, meanwhile, had just skulked off to a public house in Revolution Row to complain to his fellow drunkards and finally get the flamacucha and gin he had been cruelly denied earlier that day. Hmm. I'm just tired of how she keeps going back and forth. Like, one minute it's, you're the rightful king of this land, and I'm going to kill everyone who opposes you. And the next it's like, you're naive. You're being silly, Leo. Give me the matchbook, Leo. Stop eating jam with your hands, Leo. Go back and brush your hair again, Leo. You didn't do it right. That's not my problem, buddy. I'm a bartender. You need an analyst. I'm gonna say it. I don't care. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes, I wish my mother was dead. My god, the castle just blew up. Glad nobody I know was in there. Oh, no, 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 mother! I was exaggerating! I didn't mean it literally! Come back here and pay your tab! Following that fateful day, Leonid Culver fell upon the hardest times that he had ever known. Knowing as he did that his mother was certainly dead, and that he was qualified for essentially nothing, he decided to take the last path available to a layabout who could no longer safely lay about and enlist in the armed forces. Thus, a bright May morning found him following a trail of supply wagons, prostitutes and war profiteers to the nearest army encampment, and presenting himself for a job for which he was certain he was far overqualified. Hello, yes, where do you go to be made a general? Completely incorrectly, of course, but nonetheless, his confidence was admirable. The recruiting sergeant that day was one Conrad Berger, a grizzled man who had survived through both many years of bloody war and almost more impressively, peace. The Valorian army's incredibly stringent code of honor and the practice of fighting lethal duels to correct misconduct had taken from him his left arm, his right leg, and two-thirds of his testicles. Luckily, his habit of winning those same duels, though he was often down a body part or three, had brought him the favor of Holtzman and the Army's Medical Artifice Division, who had rebuilt him stronger, faster, and approximately as fertile. In recent years, he had taken to sitting behind a desk and training new recruits, but it was rumored around the campsites, correctly as we will soon see, that he was no less willing to avenge his honor and as deadly as ever. But at this moment, Sergeant Berger was looking Leonid over. Leonid was a sorry sight, his once resplendent seersucker now rumpled and frayed. His hat had been stolen by a gang of children who had used it to do unflattering imitations of him performing lewd acts. His only consolation had been that he had been able to sneak back in the middle of the night and steal it back, and then set all of their homes on fire. 
As a result, the battered, pathetic, soot-covered figure could have easily passed for a type of vaudeville performer no longer considered appropriate in the present day. Entertainment tent is that way. No, the, the general tent. General. We don't have a general tent. Each tent has a very specific purpose. Look, just tell me where to go to get a job in the army, and we can never speak again. Oh, looking to enlist then. Why didn't you say so? That's me. Sign here. Finally. Thank you. Got tired of singing for peanuts then, huh? Well, don't worry. Here you won't be singing for your supper. You'll be killing for it. What? You kill in the army. Did no one tell you? Singing. What are you saying, you horrible little man? Better not talk back to your commanding officer like that. I'll be kicking your arse into shape for the next few months. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Now, here's your kid. Get yourself changed and wipe off your face. We'll get to making a man out of you. As Leonid grabbed his set of fatigues and trudged to the barracks, a pigeon fluttered out of his way. There was nothing unusual about this. The campsite was, after all, a fantastic source of foods to scavenge, full of opportunities for an enterprising young bird to enlist as a messenger pigeon, and so this wood pigeon was but one of dozens fluttering about that very morning. What was peculiar about this particular bird was that while the other wood pigeons were focused primarily upon the arrival of the camp's latest shipment of bread, this pigeon was wholly focused on Leonid's movements, taking note of every one of his steps with an intense, one-eyed stare. As Leonid vanished around a corner, the pigeon took a quick mouthful of crumbs, then launched herself into the air to follow him. Now, as you can see, we run a modern camp here, laid out according to the principles of military design. To your left is the commissary. To your right is the firing range. As you can see, some of our best and brightest are training on the dummies right now. What are those? That young man is a Klein Flammenwerfer, the finest fire delivery tool artifice can create. You mean, those men in the goggles? They're not pyromancers? Anyone can use one of those things? Anyone in the 6th Reserve Squadron. But they only take the best, most physically fit specimens. Those machines are not easy to tote around. You'll need to be able to do a full day's march carrying one, along with your normal camp roll and kit. And that's not even getting into the need to sprint into combat with their limited effective range. An elite fire-setting team. Now that's where I belong. <laughs> we'll see. Here, why don't you show me what you got on one of those dummies? Ever use one of these, son? Mother said I wasn't to play with firearms. Well, your mother isn't here, is she? No. No, she's not. Give me that. This is for you, Mother. Well, it's possible a loud noise will startle the enemy to death, but until then, we can work on that aim. Here, let me show you how it's done. 
Conrad began to stride towards the row of dummies, limbering up his artificed hand. The sunlight gleamed on its whirring joints as he slowly opened and closed his fingers. Um, don't you want your gun back? Don't need it. Sergeant Berger burst into a run, shockingly fast on his meat and metal legs, leaping onto one of the practice targets at the end of the course. He grabbed the straw man by its neck, a stout oak dowel serving as replacement for a windpipe, and with a terrible, inevitable whirring sound, crushed it, splinters spraying into the crisp spring air. Ha! Still got it. Now that, my lad, is how you kill a man. Yes, sir. You can give me back my gun now. Yes, sir. Enough showing off. Let's get you to your barracks. Attention, men! This is your new bunkmate. You'll be joining a lot of you recruits in basic training. You will treat him like a brother. Because remember, at the end of the next month, which will be the hardest month of your lives, you will emerge from training a bunch of hardened, dead-eyed killers. And then you will face the physical, the results of which will tell us whether you will be an elite soldier or cannon fodder. Some of you will not survive. Many of you will be forever changed. So you'd better rest up tonight, because tomorrow you go to hell. Sir. Yes, yes sir. sir. Good. Now make Leonid here feel at home. I will see you all bright and early in the morning. Hello. I assume this is where they house officer candidates? Well, well, well. Looks like we've got some new meat here, eh, boys? Meat. Whoa. No meat. You look like you've got a song for us, eh, no meat? Sing us a song, no meat. Sing to us. I'm not going to sing for you. I went to Oxford. Oh, an Oxford boy. Was a matter, Oxford boy? To bourgeois, to sing for your barracks, mate. What's your theory of power, Oxford boy? Now, now, he looks like he just got off the stage. Don't want him to strain those vocal cords, do we? That's right. Those foreign performers have terrible working conditions, don't they? They need to unionize! They have to demand what they're worth. I'm getting the feeling you aren't officers in training. No, no. We're officers. And we boys. That's right. I'm a general. You are? Oh, well then. A general layabout. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I see where this is going. Yeah, and I'm a major. A major disappointment. (laughs) 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 Yes, yes, very droll, but... Yeah, yeah, and I'm a sergeant. What? We talked about this, Gert. There has to be a second part. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, God, they're socialists. I'm with the lower classes. Please! Please, this made a mistake! Get away. I'm better than you. What? Oh, looks like someone's a lumping prol. Ha <laughs> ha lumping prol! Don't worry, lumping prol. 
our reading group will help you realize your complicity in your own subjugation. Want it, boys? After that night, Leonid began basic training. This being the first time in his life he had had to use a muscle that was not located in his elbow, it went about as well as you would expect. All right, man. Today you'll be scaling this wall. All right. You almost made it three feet up that time. Almost. I'm all muddy. Day after day, Leonid met the hard work of training with incredible, almost impressive failure. That's another lap for every time Leo here pukes. Jeez. I'm so muddy. <laughs> you heard him. Another lap for the puke boys. This, of course, did not make him popular with his new squad mates. I say that Leonid has to be the one to clean out the latrine today. Oh god, the smell. Oh, getting faint. Oh no. Just... just pretend it's mud. And Leonid was rarely, if ever, alone. Not just because of the very public showers. Wow, you've got a weird penis. I know. Say, why do we have running water for the showers but pit latrines? The say, it builds discipline. Oh. Um, how, exactly? Shut up, normal penis. But also because every one of his movements was followed by a single, familiar eye. Whether gazing at him from the face of a pigeon, a rat, a camp dog, or a suspiciously elegant fellow soldier, something scuttled, flew, or leaned conspicuously near him, keeping him in constant sight. And so it was that after weeks of such lack of privacy and conspicuous failure to thrive, that the day before the physical examinations finally dawned. The day before the physical followed a particularly rigorous day of training. Leonid had, as will not surprise you, been lucky to make it through at all. But just as he was about to give up on trying to disentangle himself from the barbed wires that he had been meant to be crawling through and wait for the sweet release of death, he had been dragged out of the pit by a mysterious one-eyed wolf. It was how he had gotten through most of the elements of training, though sometimes it was a one-eyed hawk that grabbed his backpack straps and pulled him over a wall, or a one-eyed mouse that knocked his rifle into line so that he could hit the target at all. Had Leonid had more sense, he would have thought to question the parade of cyclopean wildlife that seemed to be watching over him, but of course, that would have been asking a bit much of an Oxford man. Leonid was now laying in his narrow cot, staring at the ceiling and feeling extremely sorry for himself, which was, more or less, a normal start to a morning in Leonid Culver's army life. Oh, my flesh. Oh. Good morning, recruits. Or should I say, soon to be ex-recruits. Because you will be soldiers soon. But not until tomorrow, when the physical sorts you out into your divisions. Until then, you are still mine. So get up. Okay, just give me a minute. Leonid had, to this point, managed to make his peace with his new place in the world. He had done his best, pathetic though that was, to get through training and follow orders. 
Certainly he had complained and wept and soiled himself, but he had until this point been fairly sure, in his deluded blonde skull, that at the end of all of it he would be recognised for his obvious talent and moved up to the 6th Reserve Squad, where he would at last be given his own Klein Flammenwaffe. He had many times kept himself warm with extended fantasies about burning all of the other men in his bunk alive, on particularly dark days when he had been especially muddy, or cold, or pierced by barbed wire in sensitive places, it had been the only thing that had kept him going. This morning, even that dream had lost its warmth. Leonid! You are the sorriest piece of garbage I have ever seen. You should be thanking God in heaven that you managed to make it this far. Oh, so God's to blame. I should have known. Never in all my years as a fighting man have I seen someone less fit for the life of a soldier. Breeding will out, I suppose. I see. It's because you think you're better than the rest of us. That precious little Leo is a special boy. Did your mother tell you that? Because if she did, she was dumber than a mantelope in heat. Probably uglier, too. What did you just say about my mother? I said that she must have survived off a diet of rocks and bricks if she thought you were worth a damn. man like you could never have what it takes to make it to the sixth. That is it! How dare you talk to me that way, you... you... you tin can! It was at this point that Leonid, using all of his military training and strength, threw a punch at the face of his commanding officer. <gasps> a punch that Sergeant Berger easily stepped out of the way of, leaving Leonid, carried by his own momentum, to pirouette in a circle, trip over his own feet, and land face first in a nearby mop bucket. <laughs> but it was the thought that counted. And now most of you will be familiar with the code of honour that the Valorian military followed in the 1800s through the early 1900s, but for those few of you who are not, a quick refresher on a few of its basic tenets. First, an officer in the Valorian army must at all times bear the honour of their station in mind. This means that they cannot suffer an insult to themselves, their military career, or the army as an institution. Second, they must answer any threat or blow in kind. Third, they must keep their uniforms clean when not engaged in operations. The list goes on for some time after those, and in fact was nearly impossible to live under without violating by accident. And any violation to these rules must be answered for. In blood. Damn! Bucket! Yeah. Now that Leonid had managed to soak Sergeant Burge's uniform with day-old mop water, he had just managed a rare triple offence. Such an occasion would, of course, mean that Berger would be honour-bound to demand his satisfaction through a duel, or be so censured by his fellow officers that he might as well be dead. Cadet Leonid, I demand satisfaction. Luckily, Leonid, as a non-officer, could refuse such a duel, as the codes did not bind him in any similar manner, he being, so to speak, below its notice. When someone in the officer corps would be bound to accept such a challenge or face accusations of cowardice, Leonid could, with a simple apology, walk away unscathed. The matter ended there. I accept your challenge. Well, what did you expect, really? Pistols at dawn. The fields to the west of the camp. I'll see you there. It may surprise you to learn that Leonid had been in two duels at Oxford. One as a second, the other as a primary. He knew what to expect of them. 
pistols discharged harmlessly into the air, a warm handshake from the other party, and an incredible bender afterwards. However, that was England, where deliberately missing was seen as an act of mercy and kindness. Here in the Valorian Socialist Republic, a nation which is often called unique in its general disregard for human life, any attempt in a duel to act in a way that would not spill your opponent's lifeblood would be seen as a grave and deliberate insult. Hence why duels were known to be the leading cause of death amongst the Valorian Army Officer Corps. As Conrad dismissed the rest of the cadets, they all rushed forward to pound Leonid on the back and wish him well. Suicidal bravery does tend to grant its bearer a certain popularity. It was the first time that Leonid really felt accepted since leaving school. He knew just what to do. Alright fellas, who's up for a pre-duel drink? Yeah! yeah. Well, well, well. You made it after all. Where's that second of yours? If you defend for yourself, did he? Something like that. Well, can't say it's been a pleasure getting to know you, boy. But I can't fault your bravery showing up here this morning. Pity it'll be your last. Here, choose your weapon. A notable difference in Valorian dueling pistols is that, unlike in every other dueling culture, they did not cling to the old-fashioned that had been in use for centuries, whose flintlocks might fail to ignite the gunpowder, or whose smoothbore barrel all but guaranteed a shot going wide. No, thanks to the proliferation of artifice and the increasing militarization of general Valorian culture, their pistols kept steady pace with battlefield technology. Leonid selected one of the two single-shot Murnau 912 pistols, and Conrad took the other. They stood back to back for a long moment, then each of them paced out ten careful steps. At the tenth, they turned. Conrad raised his pistol and took aim, his mechanical arm almost a blur as he drew. Any last words? And, not waiting for a response, he fired. The bullet caught Leonid in his center of mass. He staggered clutched his stomach, and fell crumpled to the ground. Conrad shook his head and walked back over to reclaim his dueling pistol. He was unsurprised to hear ragged breaths. Dozens of duels over the years and decades spent on the battlefield had taught him that while a shot to the gut may not kill quickly, it was nonetheless the surest way to reduce the number of enemies you had in the world by one. Well, how about those last words, son? What was that? Conrad leaned down to hear better. As he did, a slug of metal pushed its way out of Leonid's chest and fell to the ground. I said... Surprise. To explain how Leonid Culver had survived a gunshot wound, shaped his arm into a spear of bone, and shoved that bone spear through Conrad's entire torso, we will have to go back several hours to the night previous. We will not spend too much time on Leonid's binge drinking, save to mention that he had finally managed to find common ground with his fellow cadets. So, who wants to be my 
second. Not, Not it. it. Leonid, for once in his life, left the party early that night. All right, gentlemen. I must see myself to sleep. I have to be fresh for my duel in the morning. Good luck, normal penis. Yeah, good luck. You'll need it. Because you're definitely going to die tomorrow. Ha! Good one. Good one there, you likes. I may be dead tomorrow, but you, you will be sober. <laughs> and staggering back to the barracks, he collapsed into his bunk. A few moments later, a one-eyed rat followed him into the tent and crawled up the bedpost to perch over his supine form. The rat listened carefully to Leonid's breathing, and once it had determined that he was deeply, deeply unconscious, let its form flow and reshape into that of one Ariadne Culver, who was, as it turned out, very much alive. Oh, Leo. What am I going to do with you, my sweet baby boy? I left you a note on the kitchen counter, but you never saw it. I really should have checked in on you earlier, but I had to take a quick trip to England to sort out a few affairs. But it's all coming together quite nicely now. And now that you're in the army, I can keep abreast of what those tiresome feverites are up to. Ariadne stroked Leonid's pale yellow hair for a moment, then stiffened at the sound of returning boots. Quickly, she shaped herself into the other form that she had been using to spy on the army, a young soldier. She had just finished scrambling into a spare set of fatigues when Staff Sergeant Conrad Berger walked in. Sir? Eddies. Remind me your name again. Private Airy Clubber, sir. Ariadne's genius for shapeshifting did not, alas, extend to names. Clubber. Clubber. You're supposed to be working with the quartermaster. What are you doing here? Checking on the new recruit, sir. He seemed promising. Promising isn't the word I would use. The boy's a clown, a moron, a hat-wearing psychopathic fire starter. Still, he'll be dead soon enough. Dead, sir? The fool challenged me to a duel, bright and early in the morning. I thought he'd have had the sense to make a run for it by now. Actually, no. No, I didn't. What are you, a second? Something like that. I'll see to it he makes it to the duel, sir. See that you do. Drag him out there if you have to. And with that, Conrad pivoted smoothly on his prosthetic leg and left the tent. Ariadne watched Leonid slumber for a moment longer before flowing into yet another form. Now a watcher glancing through the flap would have seen two Leonids. One wrapped deep in his bedsheets, a small amount of vomit leaking from the corner of his mouth, the other uniformed and parade-perfect. The only thing to tell them apart, other than their clothes, bearing, level of intelligence, and ability to pronounce chrysanthemum, was the Leonid in uniform, of course, still had only one eye. Ariadne had a few glass eyes, of course, but none were the exact right shade of green that she needed. Without easy access to paint, she opted for the more gruesome but expedient option. Mommy's going to need to borrow this eyeball for a little while, sweetie. You just sleep. I'll have it back to you soon. Experiencing proper depth perception for the first time in a while, Ariadne stroked Leonid's cheek once more, compelling him into a deep, coma-like torpor. It was the same spell she had used when he was a child, and she needed to put her feet up. 
Then she lifted him up and carefully shut him in the locker at the foot of the cot. Don't worry, Leo. Everything will be all right. Now. <clears throat> Time to kill a commanding officer. That done, she resumed Leonid's normal form, brushed off some bits that had fallen onto her now blood-soaked uniform, fired her pistol into the air, dropped it next to the largest chunk of Conrad, and walked back to camp to score the highest marks that had ever been measured on an army physical. Leonid awoke from a beautiful dream to a splitting eye ache and the looming figure of Commander Klaus Holtzman. On your feet, soldier. What? Ow! Uh, who are you? Don't play down with me, Colbert. You showed up to your physical, drenched in blood, ran a five-minute mile, disabled three men in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and climbed a wall so fast the examiner swore up and down you jumped over it. Why, I had to know more about this Fonderkind. So I looked up your records, and you know what I found? The whiniest, weakest, most impotent recruit this army had ever seen. Did you say impotent? I said, on your feet. Fine, jeez. Hold still, your uniform is in atrocious condition. Let me just... There. Now you look less like a total embarrassment to this outfit. As I was saying, I saw your records. Poor marks in school, low muscle tone, history of acute pyromania. And as I compared that to your stellar test performance, I thought to myself, Hiltzman, just what exactly is going on here? So I went to the officer's mess to ask your drill sergeant a few questions. And I find, to my shock, that Berger isn't there. So I investigate further, and one of your monstrously hungover squadmates tells me that you and he had gone out this morning for a leisurely duel, despite my recent anti-dueling regulations. Well, that explains the blood, I say to myself. Culver escaped with a head wound, the lucky blighter, and Burger's probably laying low for a few days out of fear of what I'll do to him. Actually, my eye does hurt. But then, a patrol this morning finds his shredded corpse in the field out west of camp. Well, I say in the field, but what I mean is all over the field. At first the men thought it must have been a mantelip attack until they realized that none of his flesh had even been eaten. Whatever, or... Whoever killed him just did it for the hell of it. So clearly, this impotent new recruit somehow found the muscle to completely destroy a man equipped with some of the finest artifice known to military medicine. You definitely said impotent that and time. And I ask myself, just what is going on here? So I come down here only to find you asleep in your bed, getting officer blood all over your sheets. So tell me, Leonard Culver, how any of this is possible? Leonid was indeed wearing a set of blood-soaked fatigues, which explained why he felt so crusty. That, and the hangover. This was not the first time Ariadne had dressed Leonid while he was asleep. Well, um, you see, I, uh, uh, I, well, I, I didn't. I'll tell you how it's possible. I see before me a young man with enormous cunning, restraint, and tremendous physical discipline. All of the traits a good Valorian soldier needs. You do? Who? It's you, Leonard. 
My god, the ferocity that flows through your veins, the berserk, insane rage! <laughs> you must have tapped into it the first time your life was in danger, ripped apart your sergeant, used the rest of the adrenaline to, frankly, embarrass the rest of the recruits, and then collapsed into bed once the high ran out, with no memory of what you had done. Why, if I had a hundred men like you, I wouldn't need an army. So, here's my proposal for you. I'm going to give you a promotion. Make you part of a special side project of mine. You will live the most pampered lifestyle available to the military, which, all appearances aside, I can assure you is very pampered, while you're not on mission. Train and learn to use that berserk rage of yours in a directed, focused way. And in exchange, I forgive you for obliterating one of my best veterans. Can I use one of the Klein Flammenwerfers? <laughs> can you? My good man, you may have two. Then I say, it sounds like you got yourself a deal. <laughs> oh, splendid. Maybe we can even do something about your impotence. The two men shook hands. Leonid was finally where he always knew he was supposed to be. At the top, with the means to set anything on fire that he wanted to. Later, after giving Leonid the tour of the officer's club, the officer's bar, the officer's drinking hole, and the officer's tennis court, Holtzman left him in his new quarters, a gleaming state-of-the-artifice suite of rooms with all the modern conveniences, and excused himself to attend his next meeting. Well, that boy is a complete maniac. I think I'm going to try and speak to him as infrequently as possible from now on. As Holtzman walked, Auguste Mandel peeled out of the shadows and matched his stride. Me too, sir. Are you certain that giving him a promotion was... Uh, well, was it wise? I'll answer your question with another question. How many people with the second name Culver are there in the Republic, Mandel? I would guess far less these days than there were before the Revolution. You're correct. There were about 250 in 1885 according to the last royal census. But now there aren't any, aside from the woman herself. Most people had the good sense to change it after the revolution. Terribly ghost had people think you're related to a prolific war criminal, you know. Rumors that Ariadne had a son with the late king had been circulating for a while, but I never thought before now that he'd be someone stupid enough to use his mother's surname to sign up for the army. <laughs> Lucky for us, hmm? With all due respect, though, it could still be a coincidence. And so could the fact that Leonard Colwell was born during the latter half of King Tycho's reign, has green eyes, and grew up in the UK, a country where Ariadne is known to own property and spend a lot of time. But now there's not a shred of doubt in my mind. That young man is Ariadne's son, which makes him a valuable asset when dealing with her. I was under the impression we were going forward as if she were dead, sir. <laughs> If Ariadne Culver is dead, then I'm, uh, what's the name of that musician you like? The one who did the song, you know, um... <laughs> Scott Joplin. And I'm Scott Joplin. No, you mark my words, she's as alive as you or I. At first I wasn't sure, but what happened to Berger made me think otherwise. Only a high-level fleshcrafter could have perfectly transformed into lead and disassembled Berger without taking a single scratch, and only Ariadne Culver would have done so with such flamboyant cruelty. And that means that she's here, watching her baby boy like a hawk. Possibly literally as a hawk. And do you know what that means? We know her location. And we'll be able to bring her in. Precisely. Not to mention, if we need a bargaining chip, why, there's one right down that hallway. 
We take good care of her son, give him a few important-sounding do-nothing jobs, and she'll be more likely to cooperate when we ask her what she knows about the Kingmaker. <sighs> the secrets to Cassite weaponry are close to being ours, Mandel. I can nearly taste it. And once we have them, there's very little that will stand in our way. Hmm. That sounds a bit dastardly. Thank you. Oh, come on, Mandel. We've got an army to run. The Kingmaker Histories is a production of We Are Not Alive. This episode was written by Max Kreisky and audio engineered by Meg Malloy Tutin with executive production by Henry Galley. Our music comes courtesy of Vivek Abhishek and Les FM, and our theme was written and performed by Professor Shy Guy. This episode featured, in order of appearance, David Alt as the historian, Zane Schacht as Leonid, Joe Cliff Thompson as Berger, Addison Peacock as Ariadne, Bradley Gareth as Holtzman, and Newton Shuttlecotty as Mandel, with additional voices by Max Kreisky, Henry Galley, and Meg Malloy Tutin. If you'd like to support the show, visit the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Mothman, your favorite queer, trans, non-binary cryptid, lives a quiet life in their castle in the hills until uncertainty descends upon them when their best friend goes missing, and Mothman is forced to move to the city to look for them. Mothman feels like an outsider, though, and is more lost than ever as they try to adapt to new surroundings. But with the help of new and unexpected friends, Mothman learns who you choose to be matters much more than who you used to be. And that if you can't find a world where you belong, it's up to you to create your own place where you can thrive and take back the things you thought were lost forever. This audio drama is created by Ashy Craft and Exquisite Lore and told through diary entries from Mothman's point of view. It's a story about found family, plucky underdogs, and becoming the person, or cryptid, you were always born to be. Find us on your favorite podcast websites by searching Diary of Mothman or visit us at Exquisite Lore on most social media websites. Thank you, and we hope you join us soon. <laughs>